Club 400 podcast is on the air. Back for another week of Cubs uh, Cubs information about you, the fan. John, what's going on? We got John over there. William? That's nice. He, you didn't refer to me as the sound man this time. Oh, well, he's, you know, I actually went to a Cubs game. I am game a person. You know, so he is now a person. Yeah. I a am person. a person. Yeah, that's, good. <laughs> that's the initiation to, to humanhood. That's right. Yeah. So let's just jump right into it. Today we got a guest that came to Club 400. We're going to give him a tour, and he's on our podcast today. He should actually be probably work for the Chicago Cubs as the historian because we have someone here. He's, he's like a walking encyclopedia when it comes to Chicago Cubs. And uh, we are, I'm really happy to have George Castle out here. George, thank you for coming out all the way out here and coming out to see our place and being a part of our podcast. Well, thank you, Stu, and I, I know you made me walk through that old turnstile of yours and pay a buck fifty, which is what I paid before I had a press credential. That's what bleacher seats cost in 1979. So uh, just walking through here, I, I wish we had video. Uh, it's a walking, talking, nostalgia place, and uh, you could lose yourself here in Club 400, and uh, I really appreciate the invitation, not just for the podcast, but to look at probably one of the greatest collections of Cubs memorabilia that exists anywhere. You know, he did give you a deal on the turnstile, the buck fifty. We all have to pay eight, so you got a good deal. Well, wait a minute. No, nobody paid eight dollars then. I don't even think box seats are eight dollars. And uh, but what I used to do is the the hot dogs in Wrigley Field in the seventies. We used to say they were, they tasted like they were boiled in toilet water. So I would get the hot dogs from the old um, Franksville, which is where the McDonald's was, right at the northwest corner of Clark and Addison. Seventy four cents each for a d- jumbo hot dog. Bring them into Wrigley, and I think the only, and then I would bring a thermos. You don't allow thermoses anymore. A thermos of iced tea. But then uh, the one concession I would pay for would be the Frosty Malt. Mm. So they wouldn't want me as a fan right now because I was a cheapskate then, and I'm a cheapskate now. George, there's so much to talk to you about. Obviously, he's written the actual Fergie Jenkins. He's the author of Fergie's new book, The Cubs 1969, which we gave away at the Ben Zobrist event, and uh, he was there to sign the books and everything, and Fergie was here, and it was an awesome night. And uh, let's go back uh, back to your early days and – I mean, you obviously had a love for sports and specifically the Cubs, correct? Obviously, yeah. I had the good fortune. We're here way, way up in what uh, John uh, Coleman used to call the super boonies. Uh, But it's uh, all developed uh, now uh, all along Randall Road nearby. Uh, It's like downtown. But I grew up five miles northwest from Wrigley Field, and I think, Stu, you would have traded places with me to have an easy half-hour access on bus and and the L to get there. Uh, But... uh, no, I was one of those kids who fell in love with the Cubs uh, by generations. My grandfather was a Cub fan, took me to my first game probably in the early 60s. I have a dim memory of sitting way up in the center field bleachers, uh, the, the high bleachers, and um, my grandfather giving me some nickels and dimes to walk down to the concession stand, and I'm climbing over people. And so later on, uh, of course, I solidified my fanship by watching all the games on WGN just when they expanded the number of games. Uh, the White Sox moved to UHF at a time where less than half the market could get UHF. And so without an increase in rights fee, uh, WGN added 60 road games. So now you're watching the games from Dodger Stadium 
and the batter number six, Steve Harvey, and then drum roll with the organ and all that. Uh, all these far places of the National League and with the 69 Cubs and the contending teams for a few years after that, uh, I was locked in for life. But I was also a media junkie. We had four newspapers then, four daily newspapers uh, in 1969, and I just soaked up all the coverage of the Cubs in baseball. But at the same time, as you're reading different articles and led by Mike Royko, the Babe Ruth of columnists in the old Chicago Daily News before he went to the Sun-Times and the Tribune, um, that imprinted in my mind the desire to be a writer. And you're, you're just like a major leaguer watches, you know, the greats, um, you know, play. Uh, let's say an Ernie Banks watches Jackie Robinson or a Henry Aaron watches Stan Musial or something like that. You pick up things that you put in your own game, and I became a writer and fortunate enough starting in 1980 for a 31-year run to have a pass to Wrigley Field, and uh, it was a great front-row seat. The games were great to watch, but the people were even better. I would say that 90% of major leaguers are good guys, even though they're paid far much more than than we are. And I know uh, uh, Mr. McVicker here, uh, is that the right pronunciation? Uh, close enough, McVicker. Yeah. I, see, Harry would have called him Steve McVicker, you know, uh, screwing up names when he called George Bell, George Bush, and all that, and, and all that. But anyway, um, he's the he's the Baron of Lake Lake in the Hills here. So he's the wealthiest man on the on, on the top of the hill. But these major I leaguers, wish. yeah, you you are. <laughs> I mean, you're rich in memorabilia here. But I'm you rich know, the, in I'm rich in friends, and that's the most important yeah. thing. Oh. You know, the thing is, the major here. leaguers, major leaguers, even though now they're making as much as Hollywood superstars, uh, Mark Grace, his rookie salary is 68000 a year in 1988. You can believe that. Now it's 600000 thing. If you got to know them, and that credential gave me the chance to get to know them as individuals. And if you treat them as fellow human beings and not, I need something from you. I need an interview now to da, 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 da. 90% of them will respond to you just like the, the other person. Yeah. They, they make great money for playing baseball, but other than that, they're human beings. And I made a, a ton of great relationships in those decades led by hall of famers like Fergie Jenkins, who I co-authored the 1969 Cubs book with and people like Andre Dawson. Uh, you can see the Hawks presence here. And Billy Williams, I've been, you know, just absolutely, uh, uh, the, the visits to their homes have been really treasures. And um, to get to know present-day major leaguers or, or major leaguers at the time, like Kerry Wood, who was very, very private about his life and uh, released his uh, number to me, uh, it just was great to get to know what made these guys tick. But I'll assure you that they put their pants on one leg at a time like all of us around this table do. And uh, they just play baseball, you know, better than, all, uh, than ever we did. And uh, they're, they're, they're paid uh, better. But I tried to portray them as people, and I think they like that. And that's why I was able to uh, uh, have a lot of fun for 30 years, uh, you know, getting in, uh, covering it for a variety of multimedia outlets. So, George, if we're in a bar and... You had a beer, and I had a beer, and I said, George, Well, I'd be asleep because I can't handle my liquor. (laughs) I'd put you to bed because I'll I'll be up all night drinking my liquor. (laughs) You'd have to drive me home, too, yeah. I don't know, weaving back and forth, whatever. 
But uh, if I say, give me a classic George Castle story, you know, I mean, you've, I mean, you've had it all. Yeah, you experienced it all, and I'm sure you have so many. Like, have you have you wrote a book yet just about the George Castle stories? That might Uh, be a good one. I would piss a lot of people off by telling the truth. I really, really would. Um, Well, a a classic George Castle story. Do you really? We've got a book here. We we of course have the 1969 Cubs. Long remembered, never forgotten, and uh, I would encourage encourage all of you listening. If you haven't gotten the book, it's the 50th anniversary of the the, the Cubs team in 1969 that really set up the modern Cubs. Uh, Stu McViker, whatever, however you pronounce your name, the reason why you have all this memorabilia here stems from the '69 Cubs and the interest that it it um, it promoted among you know fans of all ages at the time, but. What I was able to do is to, to get into the psyche of management. And um, there's, there was too much emphasis, I think, in, in all of our co- lifetimes on curses and jinxes and hexes and all that. Number one, my research showed that this billy goat curse was a publicity stunt by a bar owner. The original billy goats bar, which was by the old Chicago Stadium on the west side, the bar owner, William Cianis, used this goat not only to try to get into the 1945 World Series, but he used the goat to take it in a hearse to the 1952 Republican Convention. The hearse was not air-conditioned, and it was so hot the goat nearly died. He'd be accused of animal cruelty right now. But uh, he, he tricks, tricks everybody. The hearse drives right into the uh, uh, Chicago Stadium or whatever, and he brings the goat out. He also tried to get the GOAT into the 1959 World Series between the Sox and Dodgers at Old Comiskey Park. Bill Vick didn't want him doing it. Uh, the end result is uh, William Cianis hired a helicopter out of Aurora to try to drop him and the GOAT in uh, at second base for Game 7 of the World Series. Fortunately, the Dodgers polished off the Sox in 6, and the game was not played. So um, after the Cubs collapsed in 69... David Condon, we used to call him David Condom at the Tribune when I was a copy boy. He'd come in after the bars closed, and he'd, he'd start wandering around the newsroom, and uh, he uh, gave me a dollar to get, uh, get him a 10-cent cup of coffee, keep the change. One night, he was supposed to be so drunk, he gave another copy boy $10, didn't know the difference, so the copy boy had $9.90 in, uh, in a tip for a uh, 10-cent cup of coffee. But he was a Billy Goat uh, uh, patron, so was Mike Royko. So they started writing all this stuff uh, connecting the 1945 incident where the goat was kicked out of Wrigley Field with the Cubs continuing to collapse and so forth and so on, and it developed a life of its own. Well, but uh, what I've tried to do, uh, if you remember the scene from The Wizard of Oz, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. When the little Karen Terrier pulls the curtain you know, and shows The Wizard of Oz running his uh, levers and all that, I was a little uh, terrier working for small media outlets, and I would um, try to pull the curtain on Cubs management, why they did the things that they did. And it it turned into a 2000 uh, book, came out in 2000, called The Million to One Team, Why the Chicago Cubs Haven't Won a Pennant Since 1945. And um, you know where I got that title from? It was from a Vegas odds maker. When I went to Maddox, or I went to Vegas to interview Maddox after he defected from the Cubs, this Vegas oddsmaker said, if you had told me in 1945 that the Cubs would not be in a World Series through 1992, 
I would have given you million to one odds. It would be, it would be almost infinity. Now, I'll give you a quick story. Maddox talked about his, that was the biggest bungle in Cubs history. Maddox told me in the summer of 91, sitting in the dugout together at Wrigley, that if they settled his contract the next winter, he and his wife Kathy would buy a home in Chicago and settle in. Not out here uh, by the uh, by Club 400, but you know, much closer. There was nothing out here in 1992, I don't think. But uh, uh, the Cubs screwed up that deal. Maddox agreed to a five-year, $25 million contract, and the Cubs pulled it off the table because Maddox didn't get to a 5 p.m. Uh, deadline. Well, I went to his Hall of Fame induction into Cooperstown, and during his speech, he talked about a particular talent, non-baseball talent that he had. He could perform a bodily function on command, almost, and he was famous for this. So after I interviewed Maddox at his home in Vegas, uh, he and his buddy were going to drive me back to Bally's, the hotel where I was staying at. I'm in the back seat. I had nowhere to go, and Maddox pulled this particular bodily function on me, and uh, I just had to sit there and take it. So that's <laughs> one particular George story, but uh, just just getting to know the management and and and. Uh, the Cubs did not have the best baseball management, and they had meddlesome owners under uh, the Wrigley regime and under Tribune Company. And if they were allowed to have the best baseball management in the game, the everybody here in this room would not have had to wait till 2016 to see them win it all. Yeah, it would have been tough. Baseball is the ultimate game of failure. Your batting champion fails two out of three times. You now have to survive basically four rounds of playoffs in the postseason over a month. You're playing in November to win. You're beyond beyond endurance at that point. Uh, it takes an awful lot of good fortune to win it all. But the Cubs were not in position to do it, and they should have been in position to do it if they had had better management. So basically, George Castle just said, "It's not. It don't you know? It's not the Billy Goat. It was the Tribune." So. Well, it was Wrigley. It was Wrigley, too, because in, in, in doing the 1969 Cubs book, there were no reinforcements coming from the minor leagues. There were no impact young players coming up to fill out the holes in that Cubs lineup. Uh, Phil Wrigley was so eccentric. He was upset in 1962 over wasted bonus money on the likes of Danny Murphy and Mac Kuykendall. Uh, then it was like a hundred and something thousand dollar bonus. And if the guy flopped, that was a lot of money to just, uh, you know, flush down the toilet. So he commanded his organization that you will not sign any new high school and college players. This is before the draft. So it was, uh, everybody, uh, everybody was basically a free agent to sign with whoever he wanted to. You could not sign any new talent because of all the money that was wasted eventually was talked out of this mad scheme, and they signed six young players for the entire year in 1962. Do you realize how much that rippled through your minor league system for years to come where you have no fresh talent? And they had Buck O'Neill, the Hall of Famer, charged with scouting the black colleges and high schools in the South. When the draft was instituted, in 1965, they never drafted a Buck O'Neill player, number one, an African-American from 1965 until Buck gave him Joe Carter in 1981. That's all you need to know about 
the talent deficit that the Cubs had, and that also factored in a lack of Latin scouting when the Pirates were just, you know, having a, a an unbelievable pipeline of Latin players in the 70s to stock the lumber company, and they, they played the Cubs like a drum. I mean, uh, remark that this is what Club 400 Radio is all about, guys, bringing George Castle, who has a rich knowledge and history of the Chicago Cubs in that's why that's why I wanted you to be a part of this podcast and uh, just the knowledge that you have. This one millionth uh, to uh, one team book. I'm actually going to order a copy of that and read. Yeah, that you can still get it even though it's almost 20 years old. And and yeah, it, it, it's gone beyond that. Theo has come in and he's repaired a lot of that development, uh, a lot of the development issues. But oddly enough, even as Theo stocked his uh, roster with number one draft choices, hitters. And Tim Wilkin, who was the scouting director prior to Theo coming in, had told me years before, if you want hitters, you got to draft them in the uh, first couple of rounds. There's no secrets anymore. There's no Mike Piazza slipping down to the 62nd round anymore. Not even a Sandberg or a Grace slipping into the 20s, like like what, what happened to them when they were drafted, uh, you know, 30 or 35 or 40 years ago. So, yeah. He stocked his team with with position players, which the Cubs have had the devil of a time trying to produce, going back to the Wrigley regime. But here's the problem. From 2012 to the present time, there's been no impact pitchers coming up from the minor leagues. Not only does that give you a talent deficit, but it, it gives you a sense of cost control. You're getting quality pitching production at a lower price rather than overpaying for free agents. So... The Cubs had assigned Chatwood. The Cubs had assigned Darvish. And how much money was spent on those two guys while they, Darvish, or I should say, Chatwood flamed out with the lack of control, and Darvish had injuries in their first years with the Cubs. So, uh, again, there's always something with the Cubs. The franchise and the fans are, are very fortunate to have that 2016 title. But, um, again, Theo was successful enough to be able to put the Cubs into a new contending era, but producing a perfect team, producing a, a, a good talent flow is just one of the toughest things you can do. Well, especially with pitchers, too. They, mm-hmm. they get injured more often than, sure. than others. There's a mortality rate that's unbelievable. And so to not have guys in the minors that you can pull up. You know, well, that's, conversely, that's conversely, McPhail, Annie McPhail, when he was Cubs president, felt that he should draft or the organizations should draft, emphasize drafting pitchers. So you'd be able to trade the excess for other needs. But here's, here was the problem because of the mortality rate of pitchers, there was no excess. Mm -hmm. And so now you didn't have the pitchers to trade. And now you're short of position players coming up. I, the the Tribune, I think it was the Tribune or Sun Sun times had Theo when Theo was signed to be the GM of the Cubs, uh, walking on water, right? The Sun times. Yeah. Walking on water. Now, after, you know, his regime here, I don't think we think he walks on water anymore, but I think, you know, Theo's proved that he could rebuild an organization, but when it comes to f- maybe free agent, uh, pit, you know, signings, uh, he, ha- he hasn't been too successful. In yeah, he had some problems in Boston in the same way. I mean, no executive is absolutely perfect. And this is, again, why you need a consistent farm system, because if you're signing free agents all the time, and this is, this is what hamstrung the Cubs – in 2007, uh, in order to get good fast and make the team attractive for the sale, uh, you know, under Tribune Company, uh, they overspent on Soriano 
Uh, they spent they spent a lot of other money on other free agents, but they still didn't have the minor league players coming up to counterbalance that thing. And you have a top heavy uh, payroll. Uh, in fact, a lot of dead payroll. So you really, really need uh, that minor that development system uh, built up. And uh, give you a quick example, and I mentioned this to some of your guests uh, before we went on the air, uh, Stu. Uh, in 1999, I'm interviewing McPhail, Annie McPhail, for the Million to One team, and we're sitting by the dugout. This is after the season. McPhail put a timer on me, cut it off at 31 minutes. Only guy to ever put a timer on me. And, yeah, I do need a timer, as you can see here. Uh, I expect to get a wrap-up sign any second uh, from uh, the, your, your maestro at the uh, computer. But I ask Andy, where did Cub development, player development spending rank in baseball? Because he wanted to build up a minor leagues. He told me he wanted to have a system like the Atlanta Braves. He said, middle of the pack. Wait a minute, this is the major market Chicago Cubs on a superstation. Middle of the pack, shouldn't you be top five? Um, one other thing that I did, you wanted George Castle stories. Okay, uh, everybody is looking at ghosts and, uh, and goats and uh, black cats and things like that. Nobody wants to probe into uh, the workings of the organization. Twice I was able to persuade the top executives of Tribune Company to let me up into the 24th floor of Tribune Tower to interview them. Jim Dowdle in the end of 1999 and Dennis Fitzsimons two years later. Dowdle told me that uh, when he was appointed uh, a few years after the Cubs bungled the Maddox thing, 93-94 I think it was, he wanted to, quote, cut the cord of Tribune Tribune Tower control over the team. Basically, the team was being run from Tribune Tower by non-baseball executives. So Jim Dowdle wanted to cut the cord uh, of that. He did so by appointing McPhail, but Andy, who was a great individual in many respects, uh, very respectful, uh, very humanistic. Uh, when 9-11 hit, he told the Cubs employees, if you want to, you can just go home. It's a tragic day and all that. Uh, but Andy uh, was reflexively conservative. So it took literally um, everybody's lifetime to get this thing fixed. And thank God it did get fixed. And now I see, you know, the whole mentality, basically, of Cub fans have changed because the expectations are now so high. But then again, you add that with the high ticket prices and everything yeah. else. It all makes kind of sense. Uh, I know. What do you think of the state of, you know, the game today, the baseball in general and the Cubs? Well, you mentioned high ticket prices, and that's an underrated problem that I don't think people are talking about uh, enough. It's not just with the Cubs, but any successful franchise. Baseball, at least the baseball I grew up with, and I'm sure you did too when you were a kid, uh, its appeal was price and accessibility. You could decide on the day of the game uh, into the 1980s for sure, even maybe in the 1990s, that you could go to a game at Wrigley Field and get a decent seat for under $10, or in my case, uh, $1.75. That was the price of a grandstand seat for the first of 41 straight openers I went to in 1971. And um, you didn't have to buy these, plan these uh, outings way in advance. You didn't have to save up like uh, you're going to a rock concert because I think baseball in too many cases, is, is packaging each game as a special event with the prices involved. And 
that discourages people from being repeat customers if they don't have like a six-figure salary or they're not tied into a corporate connection in order to go and, 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 and enjoy all these seats. So I think baseball at all levels has to come to a reckoning because you just cannot keep raising ticket prices to the point where people can't afford it. Used to be, you know, the whole stories of fathers taking their kids, mothers taking their daughters on Ladies' Day when it was free, uh, whole families going, grandfather, father, son, daughter, whatever. Um, that was possible when those tickets were a buck or two bucks or three bucks. And uh, I don't know if it's possible right now. You then have to plan that annual outing. And if you're only going to a game once a year and the rest of the time you're watching it on TV, how intense is your interest going to be and how much lasting of a baseball fan you're going to be. And it's also going to be on the players, too. They just can't expect that they're going to make $40, $50, 60000000 million a year because the owners will automatically pass that cost on uh, to the fans. And there's a limit. Incomes have not gone up. The job market is not as loose and free as uh, a lot of the propagandists say, say it is. You have to have specific qualifications for a specific job, and if you're too old, they won't hire you. I've kind of uh, experienced that myself. So there's a there's going to be a reckoning in this game. And um, uh, one of the other problems, uh, and it's related to it, is that uh, the demographics are getting older and older and older. And will kids and even the millennials who have a little discretionary income be baseball fans going forward? I worry about all that all the time because, William, you know, on, on these podcasts, we always ask, how do you become a Cub fan? A lot of the things is day baseball and WGN, most importantly. Mm-hmm. And now we got the new network, Marquee Network, coming in next year. I worry about the same thing. Uh, you know, as a season ticket holder, I've been a season ticket holder for a long time. It's a shame, but like buying season tickets is kind of like buying a boat. Once you, like, my tickets are twenty thousand dollars a year, but it's, it's like I give. You got to have a good income to do that, or may or, or cut other things. Uh, and how many people could afford that? Only a small minority of people, Stu, can can afford that. Oh kind yeah, of thing. And yeah. But and my point is, yeah. is but the, the actual ticket, the Cubs did their homework. Basically, they saw what the secondary, they, you know, they they, squ- they squeezed the numbers, and basically, I told them this this is where your tickets need to be priced at uh, to maximize, you know, your your intake. And the bottom line is. They killed the secondary market. Not only did they kill the secondary market, but they killed the season ticket holders' secondary. You know, these guys, we can't even sell our tickets for like in April or May. Now we can't get half for what they're asking. I had two, a couple tickets on the other day, eighty-five dollars. I couldn't get forty dollars a piece for them, and I'm eating tickets. Well, well here, here, uh, can you explain this to me as a ticket holder, and maybe somebody else here in the panel can answer this question? In two thousand and eight. The Cubs had a wall-to-wall sellout after one year of a Lupinella playoff team. Then the 2008 team in the regular season led the National League in victories. Very powerful team. I covered every single game that year. That team drew 3.3 million people, a total season sellout. That meant the games in April were sold out. So maybe you didn't have all seats occupied, but all seats were sold. That's what counted as the attendance. But in the last couple of years, I noticed that you've had 28, 29,000, 31,000 for 41,000 park in a lot of games in April and May. Are these ticket prices, Stu, causing some of these less desirable games 
to have unsold tickets. Uh, I, I'm giving you this contrast between 2008. Tickets were expensive, but not at the levels now and now. Well, I remember back when I, you know, back in the day when I had season tickets that I could actually make profit on the mm-hmm. tickets. There was more of a need and a want for tickets just because more fans could go. And now you start raising the ticket prices and you start cu- cutting out, you know, people that don't have as much money. And it's gotten to that point where it's pretty high right now. You so know? they're not going to go buy tickets for games where the weather is chancy in April and May. Well, that, the, that's the, correct. Well, they're, the, they're, they're only going to shell out all that money for uh, a perfect weather uh, starting in uh, June. The problem, you know, they used to have nice packages. Mm-hmm. They've pretty much outlawed those. It's pretty much, I mean, you, you can be grandfathered in from like the double play combo or whatever, but for the most part, you got to buy all 80, all 81 games, you know? And it's like, I don't want, I can't go to 81 games. I actually have a job, you know? And, I, and well, you have to afford those 20,000 tickets. You, you're not selling drugs out on the street to be able to pay for that thing. That's a good idea, though. Uh, yeah. Start but, on the corner. Here. Yeah. <laughs> Club 400 drugs. Yeah. They don't have to, they don't have to go into the city to, uh, to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's, you know, in the big picture of it all, you know, I worry about those things too because I, I think ticket prices are too high. I'm worried about, you know, not being on WGN, a major market. Ten dollar beers. When $10 my daughter beers I, or $10 my, beers. My, listen to this. When my daughter and I, my daughter decided to take me to a game, so I took her to uh, where I used to sit in the right field bleachers in the '70s. Of course, the bleachers have been reconfigured, but I we tried to approximate the same location. $34 for night game tickets last September against the Pirates. We had a wonderful time. I'm singing the seventh inning and all that. It was, it had a hint of the old times that you and I experienced decades ago. But each inning, these same fans crossed our path with fresh beers. The beers were $10. I'm thinking, who can afford to drink $50 in beer at a game, what is the appeal of that, Stu? Can you tell me what the appeal of buying expensive concessions that are twice to three times what they cost at the grocery store? Yeah, I'm probably not a good guy to ask. I'm like a beer inning guy anyway. <laughs> no, but but really, what's why would people want to spend that much you know money what? on I a beer? I think it's because it's we uh, our last podcast we talked to the guys from the National Bobblehead Museum, and we were talking about the concept behind the bobbleheads. I think it has to do with it's hard to get to. Right now, you've got a winning product. If it's a nice day, this is what everybody wants to do. Right. So that's why they're going to spend. It makes no sense. You know, you could probably find a place where you could get them for five, a buck. Yeah. Five ninety nine for a <laughs> six pack of uh, Miller right. GD yeah. at the store. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, even Wrigley nice Field is my happy place. So, uh, but no, it usually goes with my happy place. Well, you know, again, <laughs> maybe my maybe my uh, my view is, is skewed because I was in the press box and for many years. The press lunch, the press meal was free. It was like mystery meat and lifeless gravy. And uh, I, I hope you'll have something better than that. Uh, you know, when you have your special events going forward. But here's the thing: it was free. We're all cheap as uh, media people. And then even today, the ice cream and the cookies are free. So it's impossible to diet at the press box unless you have the absolute greatest willpower. But eventually, it was six or seven dollars for meals. But in the 80s and 90s, we would get all sorts of swag at, at, at uh, holiday time. The media would get a gift from the Cubs. I still have a Cubs black briefcase with the Cubs logo on it from 1988, and I store tapes or something in it. And uh, we used to have access to the comp seats uh, in the grandstand behind home plate. And one day, 
took my wife and daughter there, and Bill Cartwright is in the seat in front of us, and his knees are up to his chin because in those seats it was hard to put a seven foot two guy uh, and seat him comfortably. But uh, it was like culture shock uh, when I didn't no longer had a pass. You come out and see these unbelievable prices in the early part of this decade, and uh, you just don't want to pay them. We're here with George Castle, author of Cubs 1969 book. Let's talk a little bit about that because that's no. kind of like your current project. And I mean, you got to spend a lot of time with Fergie, obviously. And uh, he was our second guest we've ever had here after Kerry Woods, who was our second ball player. And obviously, I was ecstatic to have a Hall of Famer come over here for the first time. But what I soon found out is what a special person Fergie is. He, he is, is a yeah, special oh, guy. Uh, he should have been the Cubs community relations director long ago, but, uh, you know, that's water over the bridge. So, yeah, tell us about the process of the book. And, you know, when you sit down with Fergie, I'm, you know, Fergie has lots of stories just like you do, but, like, how do you, uh, you know, pick the best stuff? I mean, this was kind of focused on the 69 Cubs, being that it was the 50th anniversary of the team. So I know that was the, that was the timing for it, but uh, the stories in this book are that, are they more about Fergie or they're more about the 69 team or is it a mixture? It's a mixture, Stu. And uh, uh, Fergie came to me in the summer of 2017 with this idea. I'd known Fergie since he came back to the Cubs for his second tour in 1982, but really got to know him in his two years as pitching coach in 1995-96. He and Billy Williams contributed gratis, and I, I my eternal thanks to them, to my syndicated radio show at the time, Diamond Gems. So... Uh, he knew about my love of history, and uh, uh, so he came to me with the idea. I said, let's go with it, and it was a combination of interviewing Fergie, interviewing some of his teammates, and, and that's not easy because time has taken its toll. Sixteen players from the 69 Cubs have passed away, and time is cutting a muscle now because it's claimed two, hall, two of the four Hall of Famers on the team, Ernie Banks and Ron Sano. And a lot of the other uh, headline players from that team. So it cut down the number of people that I could do interviews with. However, the good fortune was over the decades, between the radio shows and previous books and magazine and newspaper articles, I'd interviewed many of these guys on the 69 Cubs. I had a reunion of the 69 Cubs on its 25th anniversary in 1994 on my radio show. Uh, we got them into an Arlington Heights uh, studio and others on the phone. And I saved the tape, so we're able to transcribe uh, the memories from that. And uh, so looking at the research, uh, doing the research uh, from archives, uh, I was able to come up with a lot of very, very interesting facts, uh, a lot of anecdotes that uh, probably have, have been lost to time. And uh, that was, you mentioned it accurately, it's a mix of things. But also I have a couple of historical scoops. Number one, uh, Leo DeRocher was infamous that year for leaving the team in the third inning on a Saturday, claiming he was ill, and then getting on a plane, flying to Wisconsin 400 miles to Camp Ajibo, where his new wife's uh, son was, having, was, was camping that year, and they had parents' night. And so uh, uh, one of the parents saw Leo and tattled on him. Phil Wrigley, the owner, was so mad, he wanted to fire Leo, and he was talked out of it. But when he wanted to fire Leo, he had called Herman Franks and offered him the job. How do I know this? Herman told me this in his final visit to Wrigley Field in 2004 when he was 90 years old. Herman had been an old friend of Leo 
and been his co- one of his coaches with the 51 Giants, and he just turned down the offer, uh, saying it would be too disruptive to the team. But what would have happened if a different guy other than Leo, who I call his handling of the team sclerotic, it just was frozen. He just made no no creative moves at all. Same lineup every day, same pitchers, overwork everybody, uh, Just and then forget the bench, forget uh, you know three, four guys on the pitching staff. What if a different guy had handled that team down the stretch? And, Ask uh, Randy Hunley about uh, Yeah, well, Randy, well, here's the thing. The players yeah. themselves, I checked, the players themselves are at fault because the players did not want to take a rest. You look at the records of Randy Hunley catching 160 games. It's an all-time record. He didn't want to come out of the games for, uh, didn't come want to want to rest for second games. He just would drive Leo nuts on the bench. He was like a caged lion. Um Ron Sano, despite uh, unregulated diabetes, played 160 to 162 games every year. That alone sh- should have gotten him in the Hall of Fame to play day baseball every day without a rest, without being able to accurately measure your blood sugar when you're a type type 1 diabetic. Uh, that's unbelievable. Billy Williams had the 1,117 consecutive game streak, so he didn't take a day off. They played, Leo played Ernie Banks with his bad knees at 38 years old, 155 games. Right now, a guy like that would play 120, 125 at most. Mm -hmm. So the players themselves did not want to come out of the lineup. Don Kessinger didn't have an ounce of body fat on him. Leo did not rest him until mid-September when he was totally worn out. So the players themselves had to take some responsibility. Unfortunately, that was the mindset at the time. If work was offered, work was grabbed in the major leagues because uh, a lot of these guys came up when there was still Class C, Class D, and there were so many guys behind you that could take your job. So you have that. And one other scoop that I came up with, again, just like the million-to-one team here, um, I didn't have that quote in 2000, but I came up uh, with this quote by Phil Wrigley from 1968. It explains everything. Why everybody at this table and all the millions of Cub fans had to suffer for so long. Phil Wrigley sat down with David Condon, otherwise known as David Condon, uh, at the tri- when the Tribune. And so in 1968, the Wrigley Building Restaurant, and I'm sure that uh, Phil Wrigley picked up uh, his drinks. So um, Phil Wrigley was seeing how the Cubs are starting to become successful. And he actually said that, um, sometimes it's better for an owner to finish in second. Why? Because the fans turn on you if you win too much, like the Yankees. He misread the situation in New York where the fans for the comical uh, Mets under Casey Stengel were drawing as much as the dynastic Yankees of Mantle and Maris and all that. He thought that the fans were tired of the Yankees winning. No, they weren't. Phil Wrigley didn't understand baseball. He didn't understand the New York market. The fans in New York came to first the Polo Grounds and Shea Stadium because they missed their na- they were National League fans. They had missed the Dodgers and Giants who had fled town. The Mets team colors were were blue and orange, a combination of the Dodgers and Giants. You see the Mets logo or the NY. It's it's blue and, and orange. So Wrigley misread it. But for an owner to say sometimes it's better for an owner to finish second, to me, that's the Rosetta Stone quote of all Cubs history. 
You did not have an owner who had more resources than anybody in the game, more resources than the Yankees owner, more resources than Walter uh, O'Malley in Los Angeles. He, everybody used his product, his five-cent chewing gum. He didn't want to win down to his marrow and use his considerable resources to do so. And that's why 108 years later, the Cubs won the World Series. I mean, they were a big part of us not winning, you know. No, that it's a dichotomy. Uh, and, yeah, and I, I see yeah, that. Yeah, I agree I see with we, you. It's a dichotomy. Wrigley had the best TV policy in the, in the game. Everybody wanted to black out games, figuring it would hurt the gate. And, yeah, the Cubs had a very, very low attendance until they started to win. But all those fans were no further away than their TV sets. And when they started to win and when you – expanded the Cubs TV network to all over the Midwest is starting in 1967, 68. So now you have the buses coming in from Iowa with all the drunk fans. Uh, those buses coming home from Wrigley Field must have been rocking and rolling, you know, <laughs> swaying from side to side and all that, uh, going back to Dubuque and, uh, and Cedar Rapids and whatever. But um, he had the best policy because exposure of the product on WGN for free made for paying fans and then uh, when they went on the satellite and Harry Carey came by, it took it to an, an even bigger level. And that's why in my in the 1969 Cubs, long remembered, never forgotten, I have a big chapter on WGN. And that was a big key to the Cubs becoming successful. So you have Wrigley having this wildly successful TV policy and the worst baseball organization in the game and the worst attitude towards that by the owner. And, but the media did not jump Wrigley the way they should have because he was an amazingly accessible owner. You could call him at his home and call him in the Wrigley building um, uh, office. And when he, I think one day he fired a manager, he told his assistant to take, uh, take all messages. He would return every call. So it's human, guys, to give uh, a millionaire, a billionaire like that a break if he's going to take your call and, and, and give you the quotes you need. Going back to you, George, um, I want to give you this last question here. What uh, what holds the future for George Castle and any pro upcoming projects? And do you have a dream project you, that you've always wanted to do that you haven't done yet? Well, I, I think you mentioned the dream project. I would love to do my own uh, narrative, my book, my journey through the um, through uh, time, through being a fan, through being being a media member, being an uh, an author. I would love to do it. Um, unfortunately, it takes two to tangle. You have to have a publisher who's willing to do that. Um, I don't know, and I appreciate the good, kind words and the invitation to, you know, uh, I appreciate being out at, uh, at, uh, at the event with Ben Zobrist. I appreciate the, the uh, time here. Unfortunately, it's, it's your name, your reputation, where you work, so it'll be tough to do that kind of project, but... I think I could um, tell some stories, um, maybe some that I can't even tell here because uh, I could go to the R-rated, the hard R-rated yeah. version. Before of we started the podcast, we got some good stories. Yes, you did. Yeah. But, this is, this uh, is gonna be like but this is a family show, and we might have some tender, innocent ears <laughs> hearing here. So we, we certainly couldn't, couldn't put some of the X-rated stuff that I have on Harry Carey. <laughs> and I'm sure there's plenty of it. This is oh be yeah, like, oh yeah. And I'll believe it all. I'll oh, believe oh, it's a it. well. Harry, Harry hardly slept, so he had plenty of people to see and things to do. Uh, uh, a story that I would like to tell you is uh, my mom. Now this is how times are different, right? This is probably in the early '80s. It was Harry Carey's 
I was either. I think it was Harry Carey's birthday, and she, she used to work at Jewel, and she uh, she cooked Harry this big birthday cake, <laughs> brought it in the Wrigley Field. Harry actually saw it, came over, and he gave my mom the sloppiest tongue kiss ever. Absolutely. Well, that was Harry's style. Uh, we we that we extrapolated that style. before the we extra we extrapolated this before the broadcast, but we'll go no further. But Stu, you you described Harry perfectly. I was next to Harry in the urinals. There were two urinals in the uh, the, the the upper deck uh, uh, press box one night. And he's complaining about Sean Dunstan's gold chains while we're doing our business. So, you know, there you go. If I could ask you, we're trying to play a song at the end of every podcast. So if I could ask you, we're going to go out on the song you choose. Some, a song that maybe, you know, when you hear it, you know, you reflect back on your life. Come Get These Memories by Martha the Mandela's. John, get on it. Thanks for joining you Club it, 400 man. Podcast. George Castle, thank you for coming out. We'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you, guys. <laughs>